Well, good morning to everyone worshiping with us down at our Fredericksburg campus, everyone here at our Stafford campus and wherever you happen to be at our online campus or on Facebook, wherever you happen to be joining us, we are so glad that you are worshiping with us today. If you are new, maybe here for the very first time, we are in the final week of a series titled Tipping Point. And over the last couple weeks, what we have been doing is looking at an Old Testament book by a prophet by the name of Habakkuk. And we've been slowly working our way through it. And just to recap, for those of you that maybe have kind of been here off or on, or maybe it's your first time, the book of Habakkuk is an incredibly perfectly titled book for what we're reading about. If you remember the word Habakkuk in the original language, it means to embrace or to wrestle, to embrace or to wrestle. And so the prophet Habakkuk, his name means to embrace or to wrestle. And his book that is titled after him is really a story of his journey as he wrestles and embraces the God that he loves and serves. And if you remember, what we mean by this is we've said from the very beginning that Habakkuk is, he's in this weird situation in his faith. He's in this weird situation where he, on one hand, he is devoted to God, he's committed to God, he's passionate about God, and he wants to surrender and and follow everything in him, and he believes him and trusts him. And on the other hand, he doesn't understand what God is doing. Right? He, he doesn't understand why that he, he believes that God is so good and so loving and so kind, but yet when he looks at the world around him, it seems to be that the opposite is what is happening. And if you remember, we've said from week one that this was Habakkuk's fundamental problem or fundamental challenge with God is he looks at the world around him and he says, this is what I believe to be true about God. This is what I love about God and I know in my heart of hearts about God. But when I look around me, what I see, what I feel, what I experience is so much different. And it leads him to ask two questions. One, where are you, God? Why why are you not present in this moment? And then God answers him, right? He, He looks and he says, I don't understand how the good guys are losing and the bad guys are winning and evil is running wild. Where are you, God? And God answers him, but it's not the answer that Habakkuk wanted, if you remember. Habakkuk probably wanted God to say, I'm getting ready to fix it. I'm getting ready to solve everything. But instead, God came in and God said, Habakkuk, I hear your cry. I know what you're going through. I, I hear the, the plight and the, the, the distress of my people and the, 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 the situation and the circumstance that they are in. And I'm going to fix it just in a way that you least expect. I'm going to raise up a neighboring nation, the Babylonians, and they're gonna be exponentially more evil, exponentially more sinful, exponentially more morally corrupt, and I'm going to use them as a divine instrument in my hand to punish my rebellious people. And Habakkuk hears this, and Habakkuk's fundamental problem with this is that's not fair. How can a good, loving, kind God allows such unfairness in the world because what he wants God to do is not what God is doing. What he believes to be true about God is not what he sees and feels and experiences in the world around him. And so through this series, we've kind of described it and said Habakkuk had reached this place that was a tipping point. 
He had been going through his life. He had been kind of progressing along his journey and is just doing life the way he does it. He's having fun. Everything is great. He's following God. He's committed to him. And then he gets to this tipping point, this this moment in his life, and we've all been there at seasons, where what we believe to be true about God, what we think we know about God, what we want to be true about God doesn't match what we feel or see or experience. And for many of us, we hope it leads us to this kind of more mountaintop experience for God, but more often than not, our path follows that of Habakkuk, where we go into a valley season, a season where God feels distant, a season where we're, we're confused and we're doubting and we don't understand what God is doing and the, the, it's painful and it just doesn't make sense and what we thought was the plan is not what's happening and we're just left wondering like God, the same thing, he was like, God, where are you, what's happening? And so we move into this season and what do we do? We've talked about this for three weeks now. We do the very things that Habakkuk did. In chapter one, we wrestle. We wrestle. We we, we go to God, right? Like there's this thing in the church world, an American church that says like, if you believe in God, then your faith needs to be so strong and so secure that you never doubt, you never wonder, you never question, you're never confused. You just stand resolute in all moments. But what we see in Habakkuk is Habakkuk giving you and I, us, the permission to not be okay. The permission to admit that God, I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. And he he, he wrestles God, why? Because Habakkuk believes with everything in him that God can handle his doubts. There is no question or concern or doubt or problem that is so big that that God's gonna be like, whoa, whoa, where'd that come from? I've never thought about that, right? Habakkuk knows that in his heart, faith and doubt can coexist. We saw this in the New Testament where a, a guy, his, his son is, is, is sick and he, he asks Jesus for advice and for healing and, and, G, and, he, and he tells Jesus, he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I, I trust, but there are moments when I question. And he wrestles. And then in chapter three or chapter two, Habakkuk begins to wait. Chapter one ends with him asking a question and we're told he kind of climbs up on the watchtower, looks out over the horizon and is like, God, I will wait expectantly for your answer. And we've talked about that when, when you and I, when we are down in these valley seasons of life, these seasons where things feel difficult and hard and frustrating and we're wondering where God is, it's okay to just sit there and wait for a minute. As much as we want our our valleys to be a very abrupt ending and we can move on to the very next thing, we have to acknowledge that sometimes God wants us to wait in a season because he wants to teach us something. He wants to do something in us and through us that maybe he wouldn't be able to do if we were always on these mountaintop celebratory moments of life. And last week, the beginning of chapter three, Habakkuk is still in this valley. He's still down there. But you begin to see what kind of starts to come, this this turning point for him, this, this intentional shift where Habakkuk intentionally chooses to remember who God is and what God has done. He remembers God's faithfulness over the years. He looks back, he he takes his eyes off the valley and he looks up and he's able to see the way God has been faithful to his people, the way he has brought them out of every other valley they have ever been in to a new place of depth and intimacy. Now the valley may have not ended the way God's people wanted it to end, but he brought them through it and he remembers this about God. And in chapter three, verse 16, he, he says this, and I love this, he says this for us. 
He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips what? What did my lips do? They quivered at the sound. What crept into his bones? Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Habakkuk basically says, listen, listen, I I know what you're going to do, God. And this is the shift. I know what you're going to do, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be difficult. And in fact, what God had promised him was it's going to be difficult and hard for the next 70 years. And Habakkuk's like, listen, and the, the language he uses is like language of feeling sick and weak, and his stomach is in knots like he's going to vomit, and his bones are aching. Everything in him physically wants to give up and lay down because of what is coming is going to be so hard and so deep of a valley and so difficult. But Habakkuk knows in that moment because of God's faithfulness and God's goodness that he can say this, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And what you see is that something begins to shift in Habakkuk. His external circumstances remain the same, but his internal perspective begins to change. Nothing in Habakkuk at this point is different on the outside. His country is still in turmoil. His life is still in danger. The Babylonians are still coming. Everything still feels like the bottom of a pit, but internally something in him begins to shift and the lens through which or the filter through which he is viewing his valley begins to change. And what you see is because of this perspective change, his faith and trust in God begins to change. And what you see is as you move through chapter three is that despite his external circumstances, despite them never changing, Habakkuk moves from this guy who was full on wrestling to now he's full on embracing. And he moves from a place of wrestling to a place of worshiping. And it's one of those things that I love about this book. This book shows us that God can handle our grief and our sorrow and our pain and our anger sometimes. God can handle all of that. And not only can God handle it, right? Because we can stop there and say God can handle it. But not only could God handle those things, our grief, our pain, our sorrow, and our anger, but God can take those things. And many times they are the very vehicle, the very avenue, the very road, the very thing that God uses to drive us into a deeper, more worshipful, intimate relationship with him. And what's crazy about this is they can become the very thing that we think is the bottom of a pit can become the very moment in our lives that is almost in essence another tipping point because of the way we worship in those moments. So let's take a look at chapter three kind of, kind of ends out here. And this is verse 17. I want you to see this. It says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, Even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns 
are empty. That's just the beginning. So Habakkuk says, and I love this, and so we're going to pause and talk about this, because this is like some, some beautiful like Hebrew poetry here. And if you don't understand like what Habakkuk's actually saying, you kind of miss the point. And so I want to break this down, because what he's saying is, and to help us understand this, you have to remember Habakkuk's country, right? The we, we say Israel to represent all, but remember at this point, it's divided in two, and he's in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, God's people, Israel there. And what happens is, is the kingdom of Judah is a very agrarian or agricultural society. And so what Habakkuk is doing is he's using agrarian agricultural language in this poetic verse to describe some very key theological things. And the first thing, if you're taking notes, you write this, he's describing the future, He says, even though the fig tree has no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines. The imagery that he's using here, don't miss this, right? He's talking about like uh, a tree that doesn't have buds or blossoms depending on the version of scripture you're using. He's talking about grapevines that don't have grapes. The imagery that he's using here is that these, these blossoms or these buds or these grapes that are forming are not something you can eat right now. You can't go to the fig tree and be like, I'm starving, give me a bud, give me a blossom. No, 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 those are things that at the next crop season, the next cycle, they will be ready to eat. So in essence, what Habakkuk is saying is he's saying, listen, our future is not going to be what I thought. Even though there are no blossoms, even though there are no buds, even though there are no grapes, there are no signs of future provision, the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vine, there is no visible sign that the future will be good when I look at the world around me. And that leads me to the question I've been wrestling with this week, and there's several of them. The first one is this. What do you do when everything that you thought would happen suddenly won't? What do you do when your, your plans, your dreams, your, your future, the things that you longed for, the things that you hoped for all of a sudden, there's no buds and there's no blossoms? You, you and your spouse, you, you made all these plans Oh, like when our kids get this age, we're gonna do this together and we're gonna go through this and this is gonna happen and all of these memories. And now they're gone. You, you had all these memories of what it was gonna be like with your kids. You, you thought, man, we're gonna, we're gonna have these amazing teenage years and then they're gonna become adults and we're gonna have this relationship with my adult kids that's gonna be so different than the relationship I had with my parents. And now you won't. What do you, what do, you do when that job that you thought would finally allow you to do what you wanted to do in the future? You get let go. What do you do when your future is gone? Habakkuk continues. The, the first thing he talks about is your, your future. Everything that you hoped for is gone. The second thing is he talks about the present. He says, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty. The imagery that Habakkuk is using here, this is maybe one of the easiest to figure out, is he's talking about the, the current season of crops, right? He says, the fields, the harvest lies empty. The, the, the olive crop has failed. The, the substance, the food, the stuff that we were counting on today and tomorrow for our very existence are now gone. All of that energy you planted and you cultivated, you, you worked the land, you tended the soil, you watered it, you grew it, all of this stuff, only to find out it did not produce any food. 
all that effort amounts to nothing. You spend years and years at a company only to get to the very end and get laid off. You poured hours into a relationship only to have it over. The present feels dead. What do you do when everything that you are counting on today falls apart? And the last thing is he describes the past. He describes the past. He says, I love this, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. Right, like the, the sheep and cattle, like this is gonna sound graphic, but those are things he wants to eat. But you don't eat like baby cattle and baby sheep. Like those are things that years before were taken there. They're things from the past that are now paying off in the present. And so Habakkuk is saying, what do you do when when the things you did in the past that you thought would get you through, that would help you endure and survive and make it, are gone. You know, what do you do when all of your savings is gone on a bad investment? What do you do when the bills are due, but there's a medical emergency and you have to decide, gas or that, you're savings are gone. What do you do when your past, you can no longer depend on it? What do you do when you're in a valley and God feels distant and everything you thought that would, could, or should happen is not? Habakkuk basically says, this is the worst, guys. Like, I mean, he literally is describing an agrarian society and he says, we are not gonna have any food in the future we are not gonna have any food in the present and all of our past substance that we could count on is gone. And he says, this is the bottom. This is it. There's, there's nowhere deeper to go. This is the bottom. This is the pit. This is the valley. I, I just, there's nothing I could do. I couldn't go on any further. And look at how he continues this. And I love this. He says, yet I will what? Rejoice. Let's try this again, Fredericksburg. Yet I will? Rejoice. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk says, translation, he says, I've lost everything, but I will worship God. I have nothing left, but I will worship God. My future is nothing, but I will worship God. My present is crumbling, but I will worship God. My past makes no sense, but I will worship God. Even though I've got zero reasons why I should, because everything is bleak and dark and terrible and makes no sense, I choose to rejoice in the God of my salvation. You see, it is incredibly easy to, to worship and praise God on a mountaintop. But the test of our worship, the test of our devotion, the test of our faith and commitment happens in those valleys where God seems distant and it doesn't feel like he's there. It's easy to be thankful when we feel like we have the blessing and the favor of God, when our bank accounts are good, when our relationships are good, when our kids are good, when our sports team is doing good, whatever it happens to be, when everything is great and good and fun and great, and we're like, man, praise God, he's so faithful. Look what he gave me, look what he gave me. But the test is when we say, praise God, look what he took away. 
Look what he took away. Look what he took away. Habakkuk says, even though the fig trees don't blossom, the crops fail and the livestock are gone, I will worship God. When everything in you doesn't feel like worshiping, that is when you need it the most. I've shared parts of the story with you guys before. About five years ago, my father passed away unexpectedly in an accident. I've told you, and I won't go into all the details, but him and I's relationship was really strained. When I, you know, 15 years ago, when I, 20 years before, 15 years before that, 20 years ago, when I felt called to full-time ministry, I reached out to my dad and told him, and he was very adamant that, uh, that it was a mistake and it would sever our relationship probably permanently. And so I can count just, you know, on one hand, over the course of those 15 years, the number of conversations my dad and I had. And then I was at work one day in my office and my assistant comes running up to the door and says, hey, your mom is on the phone. She needs to talk to you, it's an emergency. And she says, your dad has passed away in an accident. And I remember going home, talking to my wife, Kristen, and just saying, I- I'm gonna head to Oklahoma City. We lived in Little Rock at the time, and I said, I'm gonna head to Oklahoma City. Why don't you and the boys come later when we kind of figure out what, what the next steps are? And I remember on that drive to Oklahoma City, just right down I-40, the middle of nowhere, just being angry, mad, sad, not understanding why God would do what he did, wishing I could give up everything to go and fix a relationship before that would have happened. And on my playlist, this song called Ever Be comes up. I don't know if you've ever heard the song. I just want to read you some of the lyrics. It says, your love is devoted. Your love is enduring through the winter rain. Faithful you have been and faithful you will be. It is why I sing. Your praise will ever be on my lips. It will ever be on my lips You father the orphan, your kindness makes us whole. And you shoulder our weakness and your strength becomes our own. Now you're making me like you, clothing me in white, bringing beauty from ashes. And in tears, I just started singing. God, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. And you will be praised and you will be praised. With angels and saints we sing, worthy are you, Lord. Your praise will ever be on my lips. I believed that God was good, but I didn't feel it. So I sung anyway. Because I think in that moment, just through the the prairies of Oklahoma, the very act of singing those words 
meant more than I will ever know. In your deepest valley, when everything in you doesn't want to sing, when the fig trees are barren, when there's no crops in the field, when there's no livestock in the pen, Habakkuk says, I will sing. Even though I will sing. What about you? Even though blank, I will worship God. Even though I'm under intense financial pressure and there is no way this will ever get better, I will worship God. Even though the doctor says it's over and there is no cure, there is no solution, and we need to take him off life support, I will worship God. Even though my kids that I love are wandering and far from God and they are doing reckless and dangerous things, I will worship God. Even though everything in me feels like it's crumbling and falling apart and this valley is dark and deep and it makes no sense, even though I will worship God. When Habakkuk has no visible reason to worship, he stops and he screams it out. I will rejoice in the Lord my God, my Savior. For many of us, we only want to worship when his provision and his plan is good. But don't miss this, Habakkuk worships the person of God even when he doesn't understand or trust the plan. He says, God, I don't, I don't get what you're doing. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, I, this is confusing and strange and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering and I'm questioning, but I know, God, with everything in me that you are a good God and you are worthy of my praise and I will worship you, not because of your plan, because our worship is not the what, it's the who. And look how the book ends, verse 19. It says, the, lo- the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me what? He ma- we're gonna come back to that. He makes me sure-footed as a what? Able to tread upon the heights. <laughs> this is so beautiful. So the, the heights, to, a, to an Israelite, the heights would have been like this dangerous place. They wouldn't wanna go there. It's not like when we go rock climbing at Yosemite and we've got harnesses. Like the heights... You climb up in the heights, you fall down, you die. They're rocked, they're, they're, they're rocky, they're dangerous, they're, they're deadly, you don't go to the heights. In other words, Habakkuk's saying, God, I'm gonna tread upon the dangerous places, the uncomfortable places, the hard places, the rocky places, the places that I don't wanna be. How is he gonna do that? He says, God, you make me as sure-footed as a deer. Listen, the deer that he's referencing, it's not like a white-tailed dove like we think. It's this certain type of deer called a hind deer. And not only that, it's a certain, it's only the female, not the powerful male, because it's not the deer's power that matters. He's referencing this this deer called a hind female who is naturally adapted to climbing up these these rocky places in his culture. And they would rise up them and they would jump through them and frolic past them because the way they walked is their feet would kind of overlap in the back so they could make this single file walk and they could tread over everything dangerous, all the rocky, all of these kind of things. And what Habakkuk is saying here is he's saying, listen, God, 
I am able to walk through the difficult, the rocky, the hard, the the places I don't even wanna be, not because I'm powerful, because you give me the feet to do it. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how hard and rocky life is right now. But I know this. God wants to give you the feet to climb it. And that's the end of the book. (laughs) There's no like neat bow there where it's like, and 70 years later, the Israelites won. We don't know. Like, I mean, we know, obviously, but they didn't at the time. That's the end of the book. It's the story of a guy who was transformed despite his circumstances never changing. Just listen to this. He goes from worry to worship, fear to faith, terror to trust, anguish to adoration. And here's what I know. You cannot have a chapter three faith without going through chapter one and two. You can't just skip ahead. Embrace the valley. Chapter one begins with a question mark. Where are you, God? Chapter three ends with an exclamation point. Even though I will worship. At all of our campuses, Would you stand and pray with me today? Father, we are thankful for your guidance, your shepherding, your leading, your moving us through the valleys and the mountains and the plains and the seasons of life. As we're here this morning, just in this moment of prayer, I'm I'm just curious, at all of our campuses, some of you, you've you've shared your stories, but I'm just curious, it's just this moment of acknowledgement, this moment of surrender. If you would say, man, Adam, I I, I can't even tell you what it is, but there, there is a season I'm going through right now, and it is dark and heavy, and it is a valley. Would you just, would you just go ahead, just wherever you are, whatever campus, just lift up your hand, It is a tough moment. Hands all over the room. If you raised your hand, I want you to look at me for just a minute. You are not alone. You are not alone. Sure, we are with you, and that's great. But Psalm 23, I said this the first week. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where everything in my life feels dead and not what I expected, God walks with me. And he doesn't just walk you into the valley. He walks you through the valley, to the other side, all the way. And that is why we worship in the valley because we know the end. We know that in the end that Jesus wins, that he is good 
And there are no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow because whatever this life brings our way, ultimately for those of us who trust in him, we win and we are safe. And so church, what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna kind of change things. We, we kind of moved our service differently to allow you to kind of respond to the message today to worship regardless of the season you are in. And I know when I tell you we're gonna sing those songs, you're gonna immediately check your phone and be like, what time is it doing? I would leave. No, stick it out. Stay in this moment and worship the God who walks through everything with you and gives you feet like a deer to climb the heights of the most dangerous places of your life and sustains you in the middle of them. I wanna read this verse over you as a prayer. Just keep praying. Habakkuk chapter three, verse 17 through 19. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though I don't know what my future is, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and everything I have today feels broken, everything, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer so that I am able to tread upon the heights. Church, he is worthy of your praise. In the midst of your valley, in the midst of your mountaintop, in the midst of where it just feels apathetic and it's a plain and you don't understand it, he is worthy of that worship. There is nothing that he can't do. There is nothing that is bigger than him. He is, he is the biggest there has ever been. He is powerful and almighty and holy and he will bring you through every single situation regardless of what you feel, regardless of what you think, regardless of what you see, regardless of what everyone around you is telling you. Hear me say this very well. God is good and he loves you. And in the middle of your chaos, where it feels, I don't know, it just feels chaotic and broken, He brings joy. Don't waste your valley. You can find joy in the middle of the darkest moments because He is a good God who loves you and walks with you through every moment of every situation and gives you the feet that you need to climb and climb and climb. So this morning, let's stand and let's sing and worship that very God.